Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, you may be seated. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture. Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 6. We've been teaching a series for the last number of weeks that we've entitled Keys of the Kingdom. And we base that on the golden text scripture that we used in Matthew 16 where Jesus asked the disciples who do men say that I am and they answered and said well some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets and then Jesus said who do you say I am Peter answers and said thou art the Christ the son of the living God Jesus answers and says unto him this is verse 17 of Matthew 16 Jesus answered and said unto him Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father, which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, now the rock that he's talking about is the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I like another translation that says the gates of hell shall not be able to hold out against it. Verse 19 is the one I want you to see. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now I want you to notice that he's talking about keys. He says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now people didn't have locks on the doors in those days like we do. So the keys he's talking about are not things that unlock doors or buildings or anything like that what he's talking about is a key is making you a master in uh, the educational system of that day if you master a certain area of study what we would consider to be university or, or the equivalent thereof they gave you a key to, uh, to hang around or to wear around hang on your belt to wear around your waist that way everybody could see that you had mastered that certain area of study so Jesus is talking about making the masters. Well, masters of what? He said, and I will make you masters of the kingdom of God. And notice what that entails. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, whatever you think about binding and loosing, and there's a lot of goofy teaching out there about it. But whatever you think about binding and loosing, uh, one thing is for certain, and that is, He's talking about the exercise of authority. He's talking about you deciding for yourself how things are going to be in your own life. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is asked by the disciples to teach them to pray. They said, John's disciples taught them to pray. Why don't you teach us to pray? So he gives them what the church world knows as the Lord's Prayer. It's really not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. And it's not a New Testament prayer. It was a prayer for the interim period of time while Jesus was here on the earth. Because Jesus said in that day, following his resurrection, you shall ask me nothing but whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. So New Testament prayer is in the name of Jesus, directed to the Father in the name of Jesus. Well, the name of Jesus isn't in that prayer that Jesus gave his disciples. So it's for a period of time, a short-term period of time, while Jesus is here on the earth to fulfill the plan of redemption. And notice in verse 10, you could quote the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, I'm sure, as well as I could. But one thing we want to pull out of there is that Jesus said, Thy kingdom come. 
thy kingdom come. Now he's talking about God's kingdom, so it would be the kingdom of God. And notice what he tells the disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come. Well, that means it hadn't come yet then, doesn't it? Jesus wouldn't tell them to pray that God would cause something to come that had already come. So we see that it's the will of God for the kingdom of God to come. Because he wouldn't tell them to pray something that was against God's will. Now, what is this kingdom of God? For a long time, a long time, I looked at this phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And in most cases, those are interchangeable terms. There are a few isolated cases in the New Testament where the kingdom of heaven is talking about something other than what we have here on the earth now. But for the sake of our discussion this morning, we'll only use the scriptures in which the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven mean the same thing. So when Jesus says, thy kingdom come, I've always, until recently, very recently, looked at that as just kind of a generic phrase, the kingdom of God. Well, what is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is all the things that God wants for you. The kingdom of God is all the things that Jesus has accomplished for you. The kingdom of God is anything that pertains to God. You know, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So that just means keep your focus on heaven, spiritual things, and so forth. But folks, I was wrong. The kingdom of God is not a generic phrase. It's one that Jesus gave us a definition for. And he gives it to us right here in verse 10. He said, thy kingdom come. Here's what the will of God is. For the kingdom of God to come. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Jesus defines it. Thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. If you look at the things that Jesus uh, designated and commissioned his disciples to do over in Matthew chapter 9 and 10, over in Luke chapter 9 and 10, you'll find that Jesus gave them power over sickness and disease. He commissioned them and gave them authority to cast out devils. And then he told them that wherever they went, whatever city they went into, he said, if the city will receive you, heal the sick that are therein and say, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. That means it's near. Well, we know it hadn't come because Jesus told them to pray that it would come. But it was close. It was near. Every time it talks about the casting out of devils, it talks about the healing of sickness and disease, And Jesus equated that, connected that with this phrase, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is very simply anything that God wants for you in heaven and is provided for you in heaven. That's his will for you to have here. It's the condition in which the will of God is done for you here on the earth just like it is in heaven. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that most of the church world is looking at heaven as a means of escape. Oh, won't it be a great thing when we finally get to heaven and get rid of this old nasty world? But this old nasty world is supposed to be very much like heaven and for you in your life now. At least that's what Jesus said. Now, notice with me over in John chapter 3. Jesus is approached by a man that's a member of the Pharisees, probably the Sanhedrin, the council that put him to death just a few years later. A man named Nicodemus, and he came to Jesus by night. It's an interesting thing. Anytime Nicodemus is mentioned, and he is mentioned three or four times, 
Every time he's mentioned, he always is referred to as the one that came to Jesus by night. Apparently, he was too afraid of his fellow Pharisees and the repercussions for Jesus to be visited during the day. But there were some of the Pharisees that believed in him, and apparently Nicodemus was one of them. So I want you to notice what Nicodemus does, what he says to Jesus and how Jesus responds. We'll start in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. Now I want you to notice what he knows. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. How do you know that? For no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. I want you to notice that the miraculous is the sign that the world will recognize that God is with his people. Now, I know we've tried to turn that into something else. We mean the modern day church. We've tried to turn that into something else. But Jesus did not tell him, no, you're wrong. He didn't say, well, it's that way now, but one of these days we'll have church programs. Jesus responds in a manner that's very interesting. Nicodemus is attracted to and and convinced that God is with Jesus because of the miracles. And Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, why is Jesus talking about the kingdom of God? Well, remember Jesus' definition of the kingdom of God. Thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. So the miraculous, the miracles that Nicodemus has witnessed in and through Jesus' ministry is simply the will of God being done on the earth just like it is in heaven. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, the key to the miraculous, the key to the kingdom of God, the key to that place which had not yet come, the time Jesus is speaking, where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven, he said the key to that is being born again. He goes on and explains to Nicodemus because Nicodemus is thinking naturally. He says, well, I don't get this. How can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb? Jesus answers in verse 5 and says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water, that's natural birth, and of the spirit, that's the new birth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So notice the entrance into the kingdom of God where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven is the new birth. Now that's indisputable, is it not? Jesus gave us the definition for the kingdom of God. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. That has to mean that the kingdom of God is where the will of God is done on the earth. Just like it is in heaven. What's it like in heaven? Any sickness or disease? No, that's why Jesus healed the sick. Any devil problems up in heaven? No, that's why Jesus cast out devils. And that's why he commissioned his disciples to do exactly the same thing. Not a different work, not a lesser work, not a hybrid work. Exactly the same thing. Because that is the kingdom of God in operation. That is the kingdom of God in operation. And the Bible says 
As a matter of fact, why don't you turn with me over to Colossians chapter 1. We've referred to some of these scriptures before. We're covering some ground that we've already covered. But for the sake of those that weren't with us, it's important to lay the foundation for these things again. Paul, in writing to the Colossians, talks about the work that Jesus did. Notice in verse 13, he says, Who, speaking of Jesus, has delivered us. That's past tense, already done. Who has delivered us from the power of darkness. That would be the kingdom of the devil, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, his dear son has to refer to Jesus, does it not? So if the kingdom of the Bible says Jesus through his work of redemption on the cross, his sacrifice, death, burial, and resurrection, has translated us, placed us into the kingdom of his dear son. Well, what would the kingdom of Jesus be if not the kingdom of God? In other words, thy kingdom has come through the new birth. Thy kingdom has come through the new birth. Folks, the Bible is telling us specifically and certainly that it can be and it should be for you here on the earth because you're born again, because you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, it can be and should be for you here on the earth just like it is in heaven. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. (laughs) That has to be true. If the Bible is true, that must be the fact. Now, turn with me over to Mark chapter 4. We looked at some of these things before as well, but we want to go over some of it again, and we want to go a little bit further. Mark chapter 4, Jesus begins to speak by parables, and after the first parable of the sower sowing the word is over, the disciples come to him and ask him the meaning of this. And Jesus answers, beginning in verse 11, Jesus answers unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. The mystery of the kingdom of God. You go look in the Bible, look up in the Bible, the New Testament, how many times kingdom of God is referred to. Specifically, how many times the Bible says Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom and things to that effect. And it'll be an amazing thing to you. That is, if you had the idea that I used to have about it just being kind of a generic term. Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom could mean anything in my former thinking. I don't think that way anymore. I believe Jesus is specifically teaching. I'm sure he did in a variety of ways. But I believe Jesus is specifically teaching wherever he goes that God wants it to be for you just like it is in heaven right now here on the earth. In fact, the Bible tells us, we looked at this before as well, in Luke chapter 4, it tells us that he preached from, Luke, from uh, Isaiah 61, what we know of as Isaiah 61, where he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor. To preach, that means to proclaim the good news to the poor. Well, what's good news to people that are poor? You don't have to stay poor. He said he was sent to heal the brokenhearted. Well, we know he did that. Brokenhearted doesn't mean hurt feelings. I think too many Christians are walking around with hurt feelings. 
They need to man up and realize who they are in Christ. No, he's talking about a brokenness in spirit, a breach in spirit. See, sickness has a spiritual origin. That doesn't mean the individual has sinned. But it means sin is the original cause of sickness and disease. That's why Jesus paid the price for sin. Not just your sins, but for sin. The origin of spiritual death. He says he was anointed to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Notice how people are set free that are in captivity. Through preaching. Through the hearing of words. Well, what words would Jesus have preached that would cause people to be free? Would it not be the preaching that God wants them to be free now here on the earth, just like they're going to be free in heaven? Notice he says the same thing about recovering of sight to the blind. That comes through preaching. Remember that Jesus said upon this rock, the knowledge that he's the Christ. And the knowledge of what he will do, in their case, will do for us, has done on the cross. He said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The knowledge that God wants things to be for you here on the earth, just like they're going to be in heaven when we get there. Will break the devil's power over your life. If you act on it. So Jesus says in Mark chapter 4 verse 11 again. He said unto you it's given to know the mysteries. The secrets. Of the kingdom of God. The kingdom whereby God's will is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Now folks I want you to understand there's a secret. It's not a secret that's supposed to be hidden from the people of God. But it certainly is hidden from the world. And unfortunately, it's hidden from too many Christians. But there is a secret to it. But what is the secret? Well, Jesus explains the parable. He explains that the sower is sowing the word or speaking the word of God. He said there are different kinds of people that produce different kinds of results. Some people hear it and the devil is able to plant doubt in their mind immediately and do away with the power of the word that they heard. Some people are like stony ground who initially hear the word, but they don't have any root in themselves or have any moisture. They don't continue to water the word. When the Bible talks about watering, the word is talking about continuing to speak it. See, the first time you speak the word of God, you plant it. Every time thereafter you speak the word, you're watering it. So he's literally saying people, there are certain types of people that won't stay with it. Because affliction and persecution arises for the word's sake. That tells us that the devil will stir up trouble in your life to try to distract you and hinder you from acting on the word. That means also the devil will stir up people in your life. That will try to ridicule you or put you down for speaking the word in your situation. And those are enough for some people to turn loose. There are other types of people. That Jesus identifies as as those that fell among thorns. They get distracted by the cares of this world. The deceitfulness of riches. The lust of other things and the cares of this world enter in. Do you know what the deceitfulness of riches is? 
It's very simple. It's the idea, the thought, or the attitude that money will solve all your problems. It's very prevalent in the political season. Whatever problem there is, if we just throw more money at it, man, that'll fix it. That's really worked for the war on poverty, hasn't it? Trillions of dollars have been spent. And there are more people in poverty than when it started the program. Money's not the answer to anything. Well, let me change that. Money's not the answer to everything. But there are some situations that money's the only answer for. And God knows that. And some people just get caught up with the daily affairs and so forth. The important thing is there are some types of people that will allow themselves to be pulled away from speaking the word. But there is one type of people, one type of ground that Jesus identifies that brings forth fruit in different measures, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. Those are the ones that don't let the affliction of persecution stop them. They had the same situations to deal with that the stony ground had. They don't let the cares of this world or the lust of other things or the deceitfulness of riches distract them. They had the same things to deal with that the thorny ground had. But they hear the word and keep it. By that, the word means, Jesus means, they continue to speak the word of God in their situation. And they bring forth fruit. In different measures, but they bring forth fruit. It produces results. In other words, Jesus is saying, here's the mystery. Here's the secret to the kingdom of God. No matter what, keep speaking the word. Notice in every situation, the devil works exactly the same way. And that is, he's going to stir up trouble, difficulty, circumstances. Maybe even responsibilities in your life. To keep you from speaking the word. That's all he's got, folks. That's all he's got. If he can't keep you from speaking the word of God, he cannot defeat you. Jesus goes on to tell us some other things about this. Verse 26, he said, It's so is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground. The casting seed, he's talking about is speaking the word. He's talking about the words of your mouth being like seeds that you plant in the ground. He said, the whole of the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus defined the kingdom of God for us. The kingdom whereby God's will is done in your life here on the earth, just like it is in heaven. He said, what is that kingdom like? It's like a man planting seed in the, ga- in the ground. And should sleep and rise night and day and, be, and the seed should spring up, spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. He's very simply saying this, the whole of the kingdom of God, everything about God's will being done in your life here on the earth, just like it is in heaven, comes down to you speaking the word. Now, it doesn't work instantly. If it worked instantly, he wouldn't have to tell us about rising and sleeping day after day and night after night. He's saying very simply that you'll eventually have what you say. You'll eventually have what you say. Now he gave us another example of the kingdom of God that we haven't looked at before that I want to make mention of. 
because I think it's really important. Verse 30, and he said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? That kingdom where the will of God is done in your life here on the earth like it is in heaven. Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? Notice what Jesus said. He said, it is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown into the earth is less or smaller than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots out great branches so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. Now, this is something that I think is very important because there are so many situations in our lives and so many situations that that people face that it seems like speaking the word is insignificant concerning the size or the scope or the severity, the critical nature of the situation that they're in. And I can't tell you how many times I've had people over the years come to me and say, Pastor Mike, here's a problem. I got blindsided with this and boy, this is a mess. What am I supposed to do? And I say, well, you better start speaking the word. Yeah, 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 I know that. But what am I supposed to do? Speak the word. Yeah, I know, but I've got to do something. And they don't equate speaking the word with taking action. Because the problem looks so much bigger than just the spoken word. And the deadline is looming or the the condition is critical, whatever the case might be. And so the idea that we're just going to speak words and count that as really making a difference is just unfathomable, unfathomable to them. I planted something uh, in my backyard a couple of years ago. And I ordered some seed, and when the seed came, I was chopped. I mean, you had to have a handful of stuff just to see that there's anything in your hand. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about with the grain of mustard seed. It looks insignificant, but you give it enough time to grow and take root, and it'll become so much bigger than your problem, it'll completely overshadow it. That's what he's saying. That's what he's trying to tell us. God's will in your life can get bigger than any problem the devil can throw at you. And that's the way God wants it to be. Unfortunately, a lot of people won't receive that. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 14. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul is talking to the Corinthians. Corinthians were an interesting group. They had all the power of the Holy Ghost in operation in their church. Paul says that they're carnal Christians. The word carnal, the word that he used for carnal, it means body ruled. In other words, their thinking is ruled by their five physical senses rather than by the word. And so he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Now, here's why the mysteries of the kingdom of God are mysteries. Because people that think naturally, and of course, in a a general sense, he's talking about the unsaved, but it's true in the spiritual sense for Christians who haven't renewed their mind to the word. 
You can be a Christian and still think naturally. You can be a Christian and still operate as a natural man. You're not supposed to. The word's designed to change your thinking so that you begin to operate spiritually. But we all know that that's a process and not everybody even undertakes the process. So he says, but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Now, the things of the Spirit of God would include the kingdom of God, would they not? So let's substitute the definition for the kingdom of God and see what he's saying. At least one thing he's saying. The natural man receives not the will of God on the earth like it is in heaven. Have we done any injustice to the scripture? Now, that's not all there is to the Spirit of God into his operation, but it would certainly include it, would it not? The Bible says the Holy Ghost will lead you into victory. Well, what is victory if not the will of God on the earth like it is in heaven? So he says the natural man receives not the will of God in his life here on the earth just like it is in heaven. Now, why? Why is that? What keeps one person... Or one group of people from receiving the will of God in their lives here on the earth, just like it is in heaven, when, and we're talking about Christians whose minds are not renewed to the word now, when it's the will of God for them just as much as it is for everybody else. What makes the difference? He said, the natural man receives not the things of the spirit of God or the kingdom of God, for they, the things of the kingdom of God or the secrets to the kingdom of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned or understood. What he's saying very simply is that there are a lot of Christians. We certainly understand this is true for the unsaved. But there are a lot of Christians that are going to pass up on the will of God being done in their life here on the earth just like it is in heaven. Even though Jesus clearly said that that's the will of God. Even though Jesus clearly said the new birth is the entrance into that kingdom. That plan, that purpose of God. There are a lot of people that won't receive it because they consider God's means or methods the secret of speaking the word of God to be foolishness. Look with me over to Romans chapter 8. Jesus is talking, or what's his name? Paul is talking to the Romans about being spiritually minded versus carnally minded. Notice he says in verse 5, now here specifically he's speaking about the unsaved, but again the same thing is true with Christians who have not renewed their minds to the word and are living just like the world. They may be saved, thank God they are, on their way to heaven, but they're living their life here on the earth just like they did when they were unsaved or just like others who are unsaved live their lives. So notice he says in verse 5, he said, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. Now, what's the death that he's talking about? Well, spiritual death for the unsaved. But the results of spiritual death for those that are saved and un, with unrenewed minds. In Romans chapter 12, this is the very group that he tells to renew their minds to the word. So Paul is saying to be carnally minded 
to let your actions and your attitudes and your thoughts be governed by your five physical senses in the circumstances of this world rather than the truth of the word of God. He said to be carnally minded is death. It'll bring you into the consequences of Satan, of Adam's original sin when he yielded his will to Satan. To be carnally minded is death. He's saying the same thing as he said to the Corinthians. The the natural man, the natural mind will not receive the things of the kingdom of God. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. In other words, to think according to the word of God, which tells us that the secret to the kingdom of God is to speak the word, will bring life and peace. Now, why is that? Verse 7, because the carnal mind is enemy, enmity, which means the enemy against God. The carnal mind, the mind that refuses to speak the word into the midst of the circumstance, is the enemy of God. Now, why is it the enemy of God? Is God not greater than your mind? It's the enemy of God because God's means and method of making his will come to pass on the earth in your life now, just like it is in heaven, is to speak the word of God. And the carnal mind won't do that. The carnal mind won't do that. One fellow came up to a preacher and says, I'm, uh, faith stuff doesn't work. He says, oh, really? Why do you say that? He said, well, I confessed 300 times in a day that I had a new car and I didn't have one. Didn't get one. Well, see, he got a formula. He didn't get the principle. He thinks it's a formula. It's not. It's a principle. The word of God spoken from your heart because you've made a determined choice. To accept the word of God as being more true, more real than the circumstances that surround you. That's the principle. So he says, the carnal mind is the enemy of God. For it is not subject to the law of God. Please notice that. He's not subject to the law of God. He's not talking about the Old Testament law. The law of God he's talking about is the principles that govern the kingdom of God. The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. The principles that govern the kingdom of God, in other words. Neither indeed can it be. In other words, you're going to have to change your thinking if you're going to get the will of God to work in your life here on the earth. You're going to have to change your thinking. Now, what does the devil do to try to keep you from speaking the word? Well, in the story, the the parable that Jesus gave in Mark chapter 4, he brought affliction. He brought persecution. He brought the deceitfulness of riches. He brought the lusts of other things. Lust is not a sexual term there. It just means desire for other things. And he brought the cares of this world. Every one of those are designed to do one and only one thing, and that is to distract you. I want you to notice that none of those can hurt you. But they can draw your attention away. And that's his purpose. His purpose is to draw your attention away. Now, I want you to turn with me over to James chapter 3. I'm trusting God to help me get this out. Because I saw something here over the last couple of days that's really been a big help to me. I trust it will be to you. A lot of times the Holy Ghost gives me pictures or illustrations of things to help me recognize the importance of what I'm doing. It's, uh, I hate to use this example, but I, I don't know of a better one to use. I used to lift weights when I was younger. 
Them days may be gone forever. <laughs> but one of the things you, you begin to learn from people that, that do it better than you, one of the things that I found is that they would talk about getting your mind in the muscle. And I would hear that phrase and I'd think, what in the world are they talking about? I'm thinking, I'm not here in the gym to think weights. Wouldn't it be great if you could think weights and get the same result as going to the gym? But they found a place where they would concentrate their focus on the muscles that they were using to such a degree that they'd get more benefit out of lifting the weights than I was getting, even though I might be lifting the same weights. That's one of the hardest things for me to understand. But when I did understand it, when I finally did begin to operate according to it, I saw a lot of growth and increase. Well, in the same way, spiritually, I've used that as kind of a a guideline to get my mind into the spiritual activity that I'm engaged in. I think a lot of times people let their minds wander when it would serve them well to focus their mind on what they're doing spiritually. Well, that's why the Holy Ghost gives me pictures. Because it helps me get my mind in the spiritual activity. Now, in James chapter 3, James is the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And he writes this from a pastor's standpoint. And the book of James is probably the most practical application of Christian life of anything we have in the New Testament. As such, there are some pretty uh, pointed criticisms of Christians and and people that claim certain things and don't live them and so forth. But James is talking about the power of the tongue, specifically the misuse of the tongue. And in James chapter 3, we won't read everything that he says. Uh, Let's start in verse 5. We'll read verse 5 and verse 6. It says, Even so the tongue is a little member of the body, in other words, and boasteth great things, Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles. Now, what he's saying is, no matter how big a fire is or how destructive a fire is, it all starts with one spark. The biggest fire, the most destructive fire ever known to man started with one spark. We know that to be true, don't we? So he says one spark can create a huge problem. Now, again, he's talking about the misuse of the tongue. Verse 6, he goes on, he says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity or sin. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. Now, he's talking about the unrenewed mind. He's talking about how Christians naturally use their tongue. This is one of the things that I I think is uh, most important to recognize that took place at the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Adam lost control of his tongue. Because that's not this in James chapter 3. is not the description of the tongue when God created it. The Bible says after God made man, he looked at it and saw that it was very good. Well, if Adam had a tongue that was set on fire of hell... That wouldn't be very good, would it? So it's certainly talking about the difference in the tongue before the fall and after the fall. 
But now what was the tongue like before the fall? Well, Adam was operating out of his spirit. He had the life and the presence of God as his source of life. And as such, even though he had five physical senses, they didn't govern his life. Everything Adam said was hooked up to his spirit. See, some people question, what's this tongues stuff being filled with the Holy Ghost and tongues for in the New Testament? It's a way for your tongue to get hooked back up with your spirit. Which I see as of primary importance and value. Well, before the fall, Adam, everything Adam did was in the spirit. That's all he was. Every natural activity that he engaged in here on the earth came from a spiritual origin. That means every word that he spoke was spirit and life. Just like Jesus said of his own words. Why were Jesus' words spirit and life? Because he's operating from his spirit, where the spirit of God is, the life of God is. Well, that's the same condition that Adam was in before the fall. Are you with me? So Adam's tongue was hooked up to his spirit. Now, what do we know about words spoken before the fall? Well, even atheist scientists now recognize that there came a moment in time when there was an explosion of light. The Big Bang Theory is no longer a theory. It's been proven to be true, scientifically, to the degree that they can. Now, you do realize that science, one of the laws of science is it has to be reproducible. Well, they can't reproduce the Big Bang. But you need to also realize that they can't reproduce evolution. So it'll never be more than a theory. Brother Hagen had a great definition of a theory. It's a supposition based on ignorance of the subjects under discussion. <laughs> I think that's more true, true more often than not. So what do we know? We know that when God spoke, an explosion took place. That means words, both positive and negative, can be like a fire. Now we use, we think of, when we read James chapter 5, or James chapter 3, excuse me, we think of fire as being a disruptive force, and it can be. But controlled fire is very helpful. Controlled fire is a great benefit to mankind. For example, if you drive a gasoline-powered engine, or a gasoline-powered car, I should say, it runs on little mini explosions. There's a spark that lights the gas in the cylinders that creates forward motion. I'm beginning to see that like walking by faith. There are things that we do in our daily lives, or should do in our daily lives, I trust you do. Confessions that we make, words that we speak, for guidance, protection, health, whatever the case might be. We take those things for granted very often if we're not under attack. We take those things for granted, but that creates the forward motion for our lives. And boy, what a mess we're in if we lose our car for a few days. But when we're under attack, it's like we enter into a war. 
explosions in war are a lot different than normal daily explosions like in your car engine. Most every soldier is given a grenade. Or many of them. As many as they can carry. Grenades are sparked. A spark lights the timer. I'm sorry, not the timer, the primer. Which lights the fuse inside of the thing, which lights the the fuel that powers the grenade and the explosion occurs. Now I saw it this way. I hope this makes sense to you. Because it's helping me. But I saw it this way. Jesus said that he would give unto us the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He said upon the knowledge of what Jesus has done for us, the authority that he's given to us as believers, the righteousness of God in Christ, he said the gates of hell should not prevail against it. I would submit to you that no matter how big a problem, you keep throwing enough grenades at it and that problem will move. I don't care how big a mountain you're facing. You throw enough grenades at it, you can go through that mountain. Well, we found out in wartime that there are different kinds of explosions. Like I said, the individual soldier has grenades. But we found out in the Gulf War that there were smart bombs. Guided missiles. That have pinpoint accuracy. They're not just on a certain trajectory. They can be guided on the way. I never will forget that press conference that General Schwarzkopf had with that guy driving his truck down a road, back road in Afghanistan or wherever it was. And his day was immediately ruined because a smart bomb hit the truck and they made a big joke of it and it was, it was a great victory for us. Well, we found out during the Afghanistan war that there are other kind of bombs called bunker busters. These are bombs that burrow deep into a hillside or wherever it is and then explode after the fact, not just on contact. I would submit to you that there are different kinds of bombs spiritually. See, when Paul was talking about warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, he said that Satan had fiery darts but that we had a shield of faith that would quench those. Well, warfare is advanced from throwing fiery arrows, shooting fiery arrows. Our fire, sparked by the words of our mouth, are much more effective than fiery darts. And Satan doesn't have an offense. He has no shield of faith. Wouldn't that be funny? So when Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he's very simply saying, throw enough grenades at that sucker and it'll break down. Now the explosion I'm talking about, there are two types of explosions, two types of barriers that those explosions will affect. The Bible talks about the devil's strongholds in your thinking. One of the things that takes place when you speak the word is that it changes your thinking. Little by little, you'll begin to believe what you're saying instead of what you used to think. Your thinking will be changed. So that's one place, one stronghold, one barrier that we need to blow up is wrong thinking. But then clearly there's a physical barrier. 
or maybe I should say it this way, a barrier between the spirit realm and the physical realm. And there are certain things that break that barrier down instantly. You remember over in Acts chapter 3 when Jesus, I'm sorry, when Peter and John came to the beautiful gate and found the crippled man there. Peter said, such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Now, that was a great explosion. Because something penetrated the spirit realm from the spirit realm, penetrated the barrier between the spirit and the natural realm. And all of a sudden that man was healed. I don't know about you, but I want to be a bomb thrower all my life. And that's what you do when you're speaking the word of God. You're throwing bombs at the enemy. You're throwing bombs at the enemy. Don't have to worry about running out. Unlimited supply of ammunition. And the thing about it is, we never know what size the explosion is going to be. I just heard a praise report just before the service that somebody in our church had a great victory this week. Their daughter had breast cancer, both breasts, scheduled for a double mastectomy. They began to pray, speak the word of God to the situation, went back to the doctor, and the doctor says, you don't have cancer anymore. Isn't that good? Now, what did they feel when they began to speak the word? They just thought they were throwing daily grenades. But it turned out to be a cancer buster bomb. Thank God there are times. It's not every time. If it was every time, we wouldn't walk by faith. But there are times where God will throw in a bunker buster for us. Something that breaks through and penetrates the barrier between the physical and the spiritual realm instantly. Well, Pastor Mike, if you never know when that's going to happen, how do you operate? Just keep throwing grenades. Let him surprise you by slipping in a big one every now and then. But that's our job as believers. That's the warfare that we're in. Keep throwing bombs. Keep throwing grenades. He has no defense, folks. There's no defense he has for the power of the word. And instead of letting your tongue be set on fire of the course of hell, let your tongue be set on fire of the power of God. It's a fire either way. The only question is, is it going to be a fire that benefits you or brings cursing into your life? When Jesus said, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. You have the authority to bind everything here on the earth in your life now that God is already bound in heaven. That's sin, that's sickness, that's disease, that's poverty, that's depression. That's every other consequence and characteristic of spiritual death. He furthermore said, and you have the authority to loose in your life here on the earth everything that's been loosed in heaven. Well, what's been loosed in heaven? Everything good. Healing, well-being, abundance. Everything is good. You're the one that has authority to loose that. When they were pushing west, 
building the railroad, they had to knock down a couple of mountains or tunnel through those mountains. What did they use? Dynamite. It's a little different now. They just blow the tops off the mountains and make the roads. I believe the greater our knowledge of what Jesus has done for us, the greater explosions we can expect. Be a bomb thrower. In every situation, in every circumstance, be a bomb thrower. No wonder the Bible says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. What defense does the devil have for you throwing the word of God in his face? The power of God that cannot be broken. What defense does he have? None whatsoever. You know what that means? It means he's going to have to turn tail and run. I've been seeing myself throwing bombs ever since the Lord showed me this. Man, I put those bombs everywhere you can imagine. I really am seeing it that way. Rather than just saying, well, I'm speaking the word, I imagine myself throwing a bomb at the enemy. Glory to God. You may not be able to tell, but it's everything I can do right now to keep from having a running spell. Because this is big on the inside of me. I know I'm low-key, and I know I'm dull-voiced, and I know all that other kind of stuff that everybody says. So I may not get you excited. I understand this may not be exciting you, but man, I am turning flips on the inside. forever O lord thy word is settled in heaven what defense does the enemy have against the power of the word none whatsoever none whatsoever well why don't you stand up i'm not going to run i'll get you to stand Hallelujah. Folks, you have been given equipment that the enemy does not have. You have been given ammunition that the enemy has no access to. The only thing he can do is try to get you, try to influence you, to misuse your authority through the words of your mouth. That's all he can do. If he can't get you to misuse your authority, then he has no influence over you. But in the reverse, God has given you Spiritual fire. That's the bombs, the explosions I'm talking about, the grenades and such. To tear down his kingdom and any remnants thereof that may exist in your life. He may have fortresses set up in your thinking and maybe even through circumstance. But you throw enough grenades at it, those things will come down. Those walls will break. And thank God for his goodness that every now and then 
at unexpected times, but when we need it, he'll throw in a super-duper bomb. We'll think we're throwing just an everyday normal grenade, but the explosion will shock us. We'll say, wow, that was something. And God will break through the barrier of the physical realm. Do you realize that even revelation knowledge, seeing something new in a scripture that you've read a thousand times before, do you realize that that's an explosion of God's divine revelation? God's in the explosion business. Hallelujah. Well, let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Oh, Lord, let them see it like I'm seeing it. Let me see it even more. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Satan, we declare in the name of Jesus that healing is ours. Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes, we are healed. Therefore, we throw the word of God to you to destroy the sickness and disease that has attached itself to our bodies. We break its power in the name of Jesus. Furthermore, poverty is not of God. It's the will of God in heaven for us to be abundantly supplied. Therefore, we know that it's the same will of God here on the earth. So we throw the word of God to you to demolish poverty and lack in the name of Jesus. We declare that abundance and provision is ours because it's the will of God in heaven. It's the will of God on the earth. Father, we thank you for the peace of God that passes understanding. No matter the circumstance or the situation, we dwell in peace. Knowing that you're on our side and that we have more than enough to overcome the work of the devil. You remember in Acts chapter 4 where the Bible tells us that uh, following the healing of the man at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 3, the Pharisees and the council brought the disciples in, Peter and John in, and they demanded to know of them, by what name have you done these things? And they explained to him by the name of Jesus and so forth. But then they were beaten and threatened not to preach or teach anymore in that name. Acts chapter 4 tells us that they went back to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said. They're just letting them know here's what happened. And then they prayed. And a part of their prayer was, And now, Lord, grant unto your servants boldness. They knew what the answer was. The answer was to speak the word. 
They didn't ask for deliverance. They didn't ask for protection from the council. They didn't ask for any of those things, even though they're now being persecuted and beaten and so forth, afflicted. They recognized that the answer was to speak the word. So they're praying, Lord, help us throw big bombs. Grant unto your servants boldness to speak your word. Now, what kind of boldness are they talking about? By stretching forth your hand to heal. See, folks, there's a boldness that comes from experience that you can't get any other way. There's a boldness that comes from God making good on his word with cancer bunker buster bombs. I said that wrong, but you know what I'm saying. They've just had an explosion that brought a crippled man as healing in Acts chapter 3. But they're praying for more explosions. Explosions of the power of God that will break through the physical barrier of this realm. And that's exactly what they got. Grant unto thy servants boldness that they may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child Jesus. The next chapter tells us that people start getting healed by Peter's shadow. Now folks, I would submit something to you. And I mean this with all respect unto my heavenly father. But I want to say it this way to get your attention. If God wanted more for the early days of the church than he wants for the latter days of the church, then the Bible's a lie. Because the Bible says that the, that the Lord is coming back for a glorious church, not a beaten down church, a church of power. And they didn't need any more power of God in the early days of the church than we're going to need in the last days of the church. In fact, the opposite is true. We need more because the Bible talks about men getting worse and worse at the end, not starting off bad. Jesus, in talking to his disciples in Luke chapter 10, you thought I was through, didn't you? (laughs) Tricked you by making you stand up. In talking to his disciples in Luke chapter 10, commissioning the 70, to go and heal the sick and preach that the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus said something to the cities. He said, Woe unto thee, Chorazin and Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon, you may not know your ancient Jewish history. But Tyre and Sidon were known to be the ultimate enemies of Israel. They were barbaric against Israel. They were torturers. They were mutilators. So we usually think of the Philistines as their natural enemy, but Tyre and Sidon were much, much worse in their treatment of Israel. And so to the Jews, they were the ultimate enemies. So Jesus said, if the works which had been done in you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, two cities in Judea, if those same works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon would have repented in sackcloth and ashes a long time ago. You know what that means? That means it's easier to reach the lost than it is the religious. Jesus said, this is the gospel that will be preached in all the world. What gospel? The gospel, the good news that God wants things for you now on the earth like they are in heaven. He said, it will be preached in all the world for a witness. And then shall the end come. See, that's why I'm seeing the kingdom of God in a different way than I ever have. 
this is the message that Jesus said the church would be preaching at the end. I've just come to realize what the, what the message means. So before we go, let's pray that prayer. The same prayer that the early church prayed. Say this after me. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would grant unto us boldness to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child Jesus thank you father for boldness in Jesus name thank you father for the boldness that comes from the miracle working power of God thank you father for boldness in Jesus name Amen. Amen. Well, I think that's all. I'm clearing my heart. I think we can go now. Thank God for his word. Be a bomb thrower. Amen. Have a great day.